You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Ellie. And I'm Lisa. And we're the hosts of Sweet Bitter, a podcast all about Sappho. So tell me, Ellie, why do I need to know about Sappho? She was the first woman writer we hear from in the Western world, and the first lyric poet, and in my opinion, one of the best lyric poets of all time. Oof, no bias there at all. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) You may have also seen the meme Sappho and her friend circulating the internet. That is a reference to the erasure of Sappho's identity as a woman who loved other women in her time. She is also where the words sapphic and lesbian originate from. Find Sweet Bitter, a Sappho podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. If you don't like the answer, don't ask the question. tell the story of those women, skilled in all the ways of contending, with the forests, with the oceans, with the stars and the secrets of gods and men, singing me of the wanderers who traveled the length and breadth of Alba and Era, of ancient Gaul, welcomed at every hearth, who built castles in their minds that contained whole worlds of memory. Sing in me of the women who knew the songs and stories, the names of every mountain and the reason behind them, the tales of the heroes who shaped the land in the times before, who lived and died at the point of the sword, and the dangerous tales, the ones of the she-people who lived beneath the fairy mounds. Sing in me of the music that leaped from their fingers on a cold, blustery night, when the wind howled outside fierce enough to rip soul from body. And the fire crackled inside, warm and welcoming to friend and foe alike. Sing in me of the laws of men and gods, of the persuasive words that could stop a thundering charge in its tracks, that could pick the fairest path between the fiercest rivals and end a thousand years of bloodshed. Sing in me now of the sisters of the islands who could bend the winds to their bidding, who could call up storms and bid the waves to rise who communed with seabirds and conversed with dolphins, and who could see the future without despair. Sing in me, muse, of the women who walked the old roads long ago, their destruction following close behind them. Let us catch a glimpse just once of the women wise and magical, who clung to their land and lost it, who believed no one, not one of us, ever really dies. I'm Jenny Williamson. 
And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So in our last episode on the Druid's Last Stand at Anglesey, we alluded to the fact that there were female druids as well as male ones. You remember that, Jen? Oh, you know I do. Yeah, but if the picture of male druids in the archaeology and written record is spotty, the picture of female druids is spottier still. It's almost non-existent outside of a few mysterious mentions in the ancient sources. But we could just not let this go. We had to track down these female druids of the ancient world, these pre-Roman Celtic magical women. So we decided to delve into it a little more and determine whether female druids actually existed in ancient Celtic culture or whether this was just a myth. Jen, were there female druids? Were there really? Yes. (laughs) Okay, well, that's it. We're just packing up and go home. Packing it up. Yes is the answer. It's a short episode. (laughs) The evidence isn't huge, but what evidence we can find points to a yes. We're going to look at four branches of evidence today. Celtic culture, and whether it was conducive to female druids, Greek and Roman writings, archaeology, and my favorite subject, mythology. You're going to like the mythology section, Jen. I have a feeling you're going to be really excited. So first, let's take a look at Celtic culture. In looking at Celtic culture, what I wanted to ask was, given how the ancient Celts saw women and treated women, was it conceivable that they would have honored women and looked up to them as druids? Was there room for female druids in Celtic culture? It's such a subjective and difficult question to answer, not least because it's difficult to talk about Celtic culture in broad strokes, especially when discussing the time of the Druids. Much of what we know is very fragmentary, or it's from much later sources like Brehon Law, which dates from around the 7th and 8th centuries AD in Ireland. Or our evidence and information comes from outsider Greek and Roman sources who may not have had a perfect understanding of the cultures they were writing about. But given what we know from the flawed and faulty sources that we have, there were no roles in Celtic culture that were specifically closed to women. Women could be bards, healers, warriors, rulers, ambassadors, and anything else that men could be. Women had elevated rights in Celtic cultures as compared with the Greeks and Romans. That didn't necessarily mean that all Celtic cultures were a feminist utopia, but it did mean that they had a little bit more power in their cultures than Greek and Roman women. But the bar on that is very low. The bar is exceptionally low, but they had more freedom than their Greek and Roman counterparts, which remember every time a Greco-Roman writer comes across this, they tend to find this completely wild and unacceptable. Yeah, or like they have to make a big mention of it if it's a woman doing something that they think is something only men can do. So anyway, women, like we said, we conjecture had elevated rights in Celtic cultures as compared with the Greeks and Romans. For instance, in Celtic culture, both men and women brought a dowry to the marriage. In Greece and Rome, the woman alone brought the dowry, making daughters expensive to marry off, whereas sons brought in money when they married. But in Celtic culture, both women and men brought a dowry to marriage. This meant both husband and wife would enter the marriage on a more or less equal footing, although the rules were a little more complex than that about who had more power in the marriage. It was whoever brought more wealth into it, male or female, which I think explains why we see Celtic queens like Maeve and Cardamandua in such a dominant role in their marriages. Do you remember when we did The Hound of Ulster a while back, Jen? I was just thinking the same thing in the Celtic. It makes 
so much more sense. Yeah, it totally does. Because um, what I'm thinking of is the sort of anecdote that begins the cattle raid of Cooley, where the queen, Maeve, and her husband, Alil, who is um much younger guy who used to be her side piece, and then she ditched her husband to marry him. He's her boy toy. <laughs> he was her boy toy. And then she broke up with her husband to marry him. But anyway, so... Maeve and Aelil, in the beginning of the Cattle Raid of Cooley, were arguing about who had brought more wealth into the marriage, and they started to get, like, so intensely competitive about it that they brought out everything in their households, you know, down to, like, the wash bins and, like, buckets and mops and things to compare who had brought more wealth in. And you can look at that from a modern lens and just think, wow, these people, both of them are just very materialistic and very competitive, and this is a lot. But really what they're arguing about is who has the stronger footing and the dominant position in the marriage. So you can kind of see why it was important to them to establish that. Sure. And when you're looking at a king and queen, you're looking at, from Maeve's point of view, she's the queen and he's her consort but if bringing the wealth into the marriage gives you more power he would be the king and she would be the consort so there's a lot on the line when you dig into really what they're talking about here it's like is she still the power and the queen in her own country that where she's elevated this side piece to now be her husband or has he brought more and now he's the king and I'm not really sure how that would track. Like, if he brought more wealth into the relationship, that gives him, like, the official title of king. No, and that's his subtext. You know, that's what he's trying to say to her. Like, haha. Am I the head of the household or are you the head of the household? You know, that's kind of the question they're wrestling with there. Listen, everyone knows Maeve's head of the household, but good try, Leo. <laughs> Maeve is the boss. She is on top. <laughs> So the dowry would be set aside to accumulate wealth during a marriage. And if the husband died before the wife, she would inherit his dowry and her dowry and everything else. Women were allowed to divorce. And when they did, they took all the property they came to the marriage with. What's interesting about this to me is I look at the plight of women in ancient Rome specifically that we've read about and what happens when they either divorce their husband or their husband dies or they lose that relationship somehow. They wind up having to go back to live with their family, like go back to their father's house or something like that. Or their brother or the oldest male member of their family. Like, I think they kind of come as a dependent and then they're kind of just stuck in this household with this now father or brother who now has complete control over their life and who they marry again and whether they marry again and all that stuff. If it's death, then probably their father or their brother or whoever uncle. I think they inherit the property and the riches as well as the, the women coming back into the family. Right. So their money basically goes to that head of household that they're going to live with. So they don't have anything. It's the father or brother's wealth now. I think I could be wrong on that. I didn't do a deep dive, but this is just what my memory is telling me. But if that's the case, these women now have a lot more status and ability to make their own choices if they either divorce their husband or their husband dies, because now they have money that's theirs that they can use to set up their own household. So they don't have to be dependent on a, a male relative. Yes. And unlike Greco-Roman marriage, this money is supposed to be set aside. Whatever they bring into the marriage isn't supposed to be spent or used. It's supposed to be kind of like put aside in the corner so that if the marriage doesn't work out, everyone walks away. And if your husband dies, you've got something to see you through until either you find another husband or whatever. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it just it just gives women a lot more control and agency in their lives. The fact that they can legally hang on to this money themselves. So Druids in general, male and female Druids, whatever gender, played lots of different roles in Celtic society. They were judges, scientists, astronomers, bards, historians, and religious leaders. They were also negotiators. Druids were exempt from military service, but there are stories in the ancient sources about how Druids had the power to stop a war mid-battle. Diodorus says, quote, 
When two armies approach each other in battle with swords drawn and spears thrust forward, these men step forth between them and cause them to cease, as though having cast a spell over certain kinds of wild beasts. In this way, even among the wildest barbarians, does passion give place before wisdom, and Ares stands in awe of the muses. I mean, Diodorus. There's definitely like a, the Celtic people are wild beasts dehumanization thing going on in this paragraph. Yeah. So, women in Celtic societies played a specific role as diplomats, negotiators, and judges. Plutarch tells us of a time when two Celtic tribes had an altercation sometime in the ancient past, before the Celts, quote, crossed over the Alps. Here's what Plutarch has to say about this time in the deep past. Quote, before the Celts crossed over the Alps and settled in that part of Italy, which is now their home, a dire and persistent factional discord broke out among them, which went on and on to the point of civil war. The women, however, put themselves between the armed forces and taking up the controversies, arbitrated and decided them with such irreproachable fairness that a wondrous friendship of all towards all was brought about between both states and families. As a result of this, they continued to consult with the women in regard to war and peace and to decide through them any disputed matters in their relations with their allies. Yeah, and Plutarch goes on to describe how Celtic tribes in Spain arbitrated their disputes with Hannibal, who lived in Spain with his father before crossing over the Alps, because of the women's historic place as arbitrators and mediators in that Celtic culture. Quote, at all events, in their treaty with Hannibal, they wrote the provisions that if the Celts complained against the Carthaginians, that would be Hannibal and his people, the governors and generals of the Carthaginians in Spain should be the judges. And if the Carthaginians complained against the Celts, the judges should be the Celtic women. So it was kind of, according to this story, codified into law that the Celtic women had to be arbitrators of any disputes that the Carthaginians brought against their people. So the Roman writers here don't explicitly come out and say that the women in these roles were druids, but is it so much of a stretch to connect the dots and suggest that they could have been? This was a role that druids would have played in a community, this role of negotiator and arbitrator. And you see male druids playing a role that involved mediation between two sides in wars. Or is it so much of a stretch to suggest that there could have been female druids since the Celts were used to seeing women in positions of authority as mediators, leaders, and judges? If we look at the cultural evidence, I think that there's room for female druids in the culture. That's a good question. Maybe we'll have some answers after this ad break. So we're just going to move on to look at what the Greek and Roman writers had to say in a little bit more detail. But before that, we're going to have an ad break, which you may or may not hear. So we're just going to pause. Everyone pause. This would be a great time to refill your, your cups if you're drinking along with us. Jen's going to get a drink and now we're going to have some ads. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> And we're back. So let's get back to female druids. Let's talk about what they might have looked like in the Roman and Greek writings. So the Roman writers did talk about female druids explicitly. 
sort of, in some translations. In some translations, the women in question aren't explicitly called druids. They might have other titles or be referred to as priestesses or seers, but seem to be from Celtic cultures and occupy roles that look druidic. And in a few rare cases, the women are called druids specifically. Here are some examples. Yeah, so tracking down female druids in the ancient sources can sometimes be complicated, which is why there are all these caveats. So, ding, ding, there's a ring at the doorbell, Jen. Who could it be? It's Pomponius Mela, and he's got a cheese bikini for us. Oh, man, he's got his cheese speedo on, he's got a stack of pizzas, and he's got just the quote we need for the podcast every single time. Give it to me, Pomponius Mela. Oh my god, now it's a porn. (laughs) Well, we're going to cut that out anyway. (laughs) Oh, so says you. So Pomponius Mela, he was a Roman geographer writing around AD 43, and he describes a very special group of Celtic priestesses called the Galazene. Galazene. The Galazene. That's what they're called. Say it with confidence, babe. Exactly. Just say it like you know how to say it. He says, quote, In the Britannic Sea, opposite the coast of the Asismi, the Isle of Senna belongs to a Gallic divinity and is famous for its oracle, whose priestesses, sanctified by their perpetual virginity, are reportedly nine in number. They call the priestesses Galazine, and think that because they have been endowed with unique powers, they stir up the seas and the winds by their magic charms, that they turn into whatever animals they want, that they cure what is incurable among other peoples, that they know and predict the future— but that it is not revealed except to sea voyagers and then only to those traveling to consult them. So he doesn't actually come out and call them druids, but they're Celtic magical women who can control the seas and turn into animals and predict the future and heal people. So female druids, yes? That's a yes from me. Yeah. There are only two druids specifically mentioned by name in any ancient Greek or Roman source. One is Debesiakus of the Adri, an important Gallic ally to Caesar who appears in the commentaries. The other is a woman. Cassius Dio mentions her in passing. Her name is Ghana, and she traveled to Rome to be honored by the Emperor Domitian. And that's basically all we get about her. We have her name and that's it, and that she traveled to Rome to be honored by Domitian. So you also see a glimpse of women who might have been female druids in Tacitus' account of the destruction of Mona, the druid's last stand. We told that story in our last episode, so we're not going into it in a huge amount of detail here. But suffice it to say that Anglesey, or Mona, is an island off the coast of northwestern Wales that was believed to be the last stronghold of the druidic religion and a center of resistance when the Romans were in the midst of conquering Britain. Finally, the Romans decided to strike at the beating heart of the rebellion by destroying the stronghold of the Druids in Anglesey once and for all. This was the description in Tacitus, who was the son-in-law of Agricola, who eventually led the Roman conquest of Britain and who may have been an eyewitness to these events. I read this passage in the previous episode, but I'm also going to give it to you here because I just need to put it in here. Well, sometimes the context really makes a massive difference. I find as we go deeper into the podcast, into learning the history, like it's one of those things where every single time I come back to things I learned earlier, I was like, oh my God, this is so much richer. Well, let me just read you the quote and then I'll talk about what I want to emphasize in it this time around. So, quote, on the beach stood the adverse array, a serried mass of arms and men with women flitting between the ranks in the style of the Furies, in robes of deathly black and with disheveled hair, they brandished their torches while a circle of druids lifting their hands to heaven and showering imprecations struck the troops with such an awe at the extraordinary spectacle that as though their limbs were paralyzed, they exposed their bodies to wounds without an attempt at movement. 
then, reassured by their general, and inciting each other never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics, they charged behind the standards, cut down all who met them, and enveloped the enemy in his own flames. So, this is a really intense quote, and it's basically an eyewitness account of a, of a genocide, I think. And what I wanted to emphasize here, this time around, is the women in this quote. The women flitting between the ranks in the style of the Furies with disheveled hair, wearing black robes, and um, Tacitus says that they're flitting around amidst a circle of druids, but the women could also be druids. The only thing that I question is women in Greece and Rome could have ceremonial priestess power in different cults. So I wonder why he would think that these women aren't druids. Yeah, I have no idea why they wouldn't think that. So it wouldn't have been weird for Agricola or Tacitus to see women with a religious role. But I just think it's interesting that they don't credit the women in this scene with a religious role. And I don't know why that is. So that was supposed to have been the end of the druids of whatever gender, but they come up later in the sources. What we're about to quote is from the Historia Augusta, which is kind of outrageous, factually dubious. The author and date are unknown. It's definitely me and my time traveling machine. And it's sometimes described as the ancient world National Enquirer, because if I was going to write something about the ancient world... It would be about as good as the National Enquirer, let's be honest. So this is all just to give you the caveat that this is not the most trustworthy of ancient sources. The Historia Augusta is such fun. You guys should just read it for fun. It's so much fun in our mini-sode series about Commodus. I used it as like a massive source and it's just hilarious. There's just so much wildness going on. It's also maybe not the most trustworthy source, but it's also a little terrifying in some of the stories it tells. It's very salacious and it's great when you have actual sources you can trust and you can triangulate a little. Mm -hmm. I read that in the Historia Augusta, which definitely is telling me that Bat Boy is real. And then here's Cassius Dio and Suetonius both mentioning the Bat Boy. (laughs) But here's Cassius Dio and Suetonius both mentioning it. So maybe something is happening that I need to pay attention to in between the lines. Just bear in mind, I did not triangulate any of this. But we're going to use it anyway. If you're using us for your history class, please be advised we're not historians. Think of us like the Ancient World National Enquirer, where the Historia (laughs) Augusta, Jen wrote it. It's fine. The thing about the Historia Augusta is that it mentions female druids in passing a couple of times. One was during the reign of Alexander Severus, a young emperor who died tragically. And we talk about him in Child Emperor's Lambs to the Slaughter. That was a long time ago. It was so long ago. I do remember a whole lot of going, oh, God, poor Alexander Severus. Every time, this poor kid. Yeah, he did not have a good time. He was killed at war by his own troops during a mutiny. And the Historia Augusta tells us that before he left, it was a female druid who called out, go, but do not hope for victory and put no trust in your soldiers. Alexander Severus died in 235 A.D., But the Historia Augusta also tells us that a later emperor, Aurelian, also consulted with some druidesses in Gaul, asking whether the imperial line would stay in his family. The druidesses said, quote, None would have a name more illustrious in the Commonwealth than the descendants of Claudius, and as far as I know, Aurelian was not of the house of Claudius, so this was not good news for him. I mean, to be fair, that makes a lot of sense based on what we talked about last time. The druidesses weren't here to make Romans feel good. They were here to make Romans feel bad, you know? They were here to say, doom is coming. They wanted to predict doom and gloom and destabilize the emperor. Sit down and strap in because your doom is here. It's like they're they're playing the role of the Banshee or perhaps the Morgan. And that's a really interesting connection. This connection between women and doomsaying. You know, it is in their mythology. We see it like we had in our Halloween episode. We saw it with the Banshee. We saw it with 
lots of stuff. This is something that is there for us to, to see. Yeah, so that would have been sometime between 270 and 275 AD, this last time with Aurelian, long after the brutal suppression of the Druids and the conquest of Britain. That tells us there were some Druids around still, and they were sometimes consulted by emperors, and a lot of the time they predicted doom and gloom. Maybe at this point, the Britons were so Romanized that the Druids had very little cultural power and were seen as less of a threat, which meant that the emperors would allow them to do this. Or maybe the Historia Augusta is full of shit and we're so gullible that we're falling for it. Also possible. Maybe, maybe not. There's a feeling that some of the old Irish tales like come from this like period in a time where you had the Celtic peoples fighting against an outside force, which we don't know who it is, because this has all been translated down to us by Christian monks much, much later. Yeah, it's kind of like a game of telephone. These are all stories, oral histories written down by monks a thousand years after these events, if they deed to these events at all, which we don't know. We don't know. But it's possible that might be what they're talking about is this culture clash, this time in which they were being put down by these outside forces and constantly fighting the same battle over and over again. Like a horrible Groundhog's Day. So that's the latest we hear of any sort of contemporary-ish mentions of female druids in ancient Greek and Roman sources that I know of. But what does the archaeology tell us? Well, not a lot, unfortunately. (laughs) There are challenges to interpreting the evidence in Celtic archaeology. We mentioned in our last episode on the Druids' last stand that there are no archaeological artifacts or sites that can be definitively linked to the Druids. The Druids leave no archaeological trace at all, but there is some archaeological evidence that points to women in Celtic cultures having leadership roles, including possibly as priestesses. No discussion of female druids in Celtic archaeology would be complete without discussing the Lady of Vix. In 1953, a remarkable grave was unearthed that dated from around 500 BC during the wealthy but not extremely warlike Hallstatt culture. The Hallstatt Celts were all about the partying. They were less about the war. They had the giant golden cauldron. Massive amounts of drinking. They had the nine-person place settings of golden goblets and drinking horns. And they were very wealthy. They had amazing chariots and beautiful shoes and bling and jewelry from all over the ancient world. But they were not as warlike. They eventually evolved into the very warlike Laten culture, which came a bit later. But that's not what we're talking about now. So... The Lady of Vieques was a Hallstatt woman who was very wealthy, and she was also very unusual. And we talk about Hallstatt and Laten Celtic cultures in more detail in an earlier episode on the Gauls, which is called Everything Belongs to the Brave. And we also talk about the Lady of Vieques there. But I'm going to repeat what we talked about regarding her in that episode because it's just so relevant, and she's the most likely evidence that I found in my research that points to a Celtic woman having possibly a a lead magical role in her community. So let's talk about this grave. So the Lady of Vix was in a grave that had never been looted, and this is extremely rare, and it provided some really interesting finds. The woman in the grave was clearly very high status. She was buried in a ceremonial cart with a bronze-headed staff placed across her chest. She wore an intricate golden torque, a sign of very high status in Celtic cultures, as well as a gold diadem and beads of diorite, serpentine, and Baltic amber. Some of her jewelry was locally made, and some of it imported from places as far away as Scythia and Greece. Perhaps the most interesting find was the massive crater, a large, iconically ancient Greek cauldron for mixing, storing, and serving wine. And wine in those days was often mixed with water. Unless you were Scythian. Right, or Thracian. (laughs) 
I was waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, you knew I was going to say that if you didn't. <laughs> this is easily the largest vessel of its kind ever found. It could hold more than a thousand liters or over 1,500 bottles of wine. Oh my goodness, I can have a wine bath. Or Prosecco. You could have 1,500 bottles of Prosecco in there. It'd be amazing. It's a, like a Prosecco bubble bath. Oh my goodness. It's like a Prosecco jacuzzi tub. <laughs> So this crater was immense, but also built to be easily disassembled and reassembled with detachable panels labeled with Greek letters that indicate the order of assembly. I mean, that is crazy. That's like an Ikea, <laughs> like an Ikea crater. Yeah, I think we said the exact same thing the last time we talked about the Lady of Vix. It's like a, it's like an Ikea cauldron. It's so cool. You can like take it apart and travel around and then reassemble it wherever you are. And one thing here that tips me off that there was possibly a Druidic connection is the Greek connection. There's quite a few things about the Druidic religion that point to an older connection with Greeks like Pythagoras, for example. And there's stuff in their philosophy about reincarnation specifically. People in the ancient world definitely made the connection to Pythagoras about that stuff. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that is it's like a, a really intriguing possible connection. For now, I think the simple takeaway here is that in the ancient world, it was widely believed that the Druids shared a um, philosophical root with some aspects of certain Greek cults and philosophies, including Pythagoras. But again, the reminder is the people telling us this are the Greek and Roman sources. He would have been very familiar with Pythagoras's cult and would have been using that probably as a way to frame the things that they saw in the Druidic religion. Possibly, yeah. So it's not, you know, a sure thing. You have to take it with a grain of salt. But what's interesting here that I would just want to point out is this Greek connection with this crater. And this crater in particular makes some historians believe that this woman held a place in her society as some kind of religious leader. Archaeologists believe that this crater might be not just a an implement of hardcore partying and possibly a Prosecco jacuzzi, but also a religious object. Wine in ancient times wasn't just something you drank recreationally. In many cultures, well, sometimes you did, but not always. In many cultures, it had a ceremonial and religious function and was thought to induce a madness that made you feel closer to the gods. Ancient people saw something holy in alcohol's ability to sort of change your mindset and transport you beyond your earthly problems. And that's why wine so often played a significant role in religious rituals. And we don't know anything about the religious practices of the Druids or of the Hallstatt culture that this woman belonged to, if they were even one and the same. It's conjecture here. We're just looking at some circumstantial evidence. So archaeologists also found that the woman had some health problems that would have given her an unusual appearance. She had degeneration in her hip joints that suggest she may have walked with a distinctive waddling gait. She had an unusual asymmetric head shape and damage to her inner ear canal that suggested her head would have tilted to the right and her face may have had a twisted appearance. Due to her health conditions, it's fairly clear that this woman's appearance would have set her apart. Some historians have suggested that she was seen as holy and may have been a religious leader or seer in her community. Yeah, and in a lot of ancient cultures, there was a connection between having a physical disability and being closer to the gods. Sure, because in a lot of ways, that's a profession that you can also have. Yeah, like it's a profession you can have that doesn't require, I guess, depending on the cult, but doesn't a lot of the time require a lot of physical labor. And also, if you have an appearance that really does set you apart, people may think you have that appearance because you've been somehow touched by or blessed by the gods or something like that. You can totally leverage it in your favor. Absolutely. 
So in Everything Belongs to the Brave, we went out on a limb and suggested that this woman could possibly have been a female druid. And that does not seem that out there to me, although there's nothing ostensibly linking her to druidry. Like we've said, there's no archaeological artifact that's ever been found that we can definitely say that's, that's a druid artifact. There are a few pieces of circumstantial evidence that suggest she could have been a religious leader, including that crater, her unusual appearance and health defects, and it's possible, but not known for sure, which is basically the state of all archaeological evidence about female druids or druids at all. But it's, I don't know, like it's probably the most substantial evidence archaeologically that we have about female druids. Other links between rich burials of upper-class Celtic women and druidry are even more tenuous. There's a burial in Rheinheim, Germany, of a high-ranking woman similarly swathed in Baltic amber and other elaborate jewels, with stunning drinking horns, dating from around the 4th century BC. She's sometimes called a priestess, although the only thing we see in her grave good that could possibly indicate that are the drinking horns. And those aren't as big and ceremonial-looking as the Lady of Vic's crater. But who knows? You know, if you do research like this, you'll see articles about different burials, and sometimes they'll make claims that this was definitely a priestess. But when you read a little deeper, it's hard to say why they're saying that, or if they do say that, it's because of some evidence that seems very circumstantial. Yeah, and there's also the fallacy of our own, like, brains that wants to see connections and patterns that aren't necessarily there. I make that mistake all the time when we're looking at ancient history. I'm like, but that looks like this. And it's like, well, maybe, but also maybe you're just seeing that because you've just spent six months researching Thracians or Dionysus, you know? Yeah, there's definitely a thing about how our lens is influenced by what we know. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we're right when we see some kind of a similarity. So there's a large mound burial in Hunneberg, Germany, of a high-ranking woman with all the health debt bling, torques, beads, lavish fibulae, and other jewelry, that dates from around the 600s BC. She was about 30 years old when she died, and she was buried with a three-year-old girl. Some historians believe she may have had a religious role in her community because of the petrified sea urchins and ammonites, which was a kind of prehistoric shellfish, found in the tomb. These were believed to have religious significance in this culture, but she may also have been a warrior because armor and horse bits and gear were found in her tomb as well. So, we don't know. It's also worth mentioning that some druids did know how to fight because they would fight each other for the role of the high druid or the, you know, lead druid. So she could have been both. So the word druid is often thrown around somewhat sensationally in the news. For instance, there's an account of a woman from the Hebrides in Scotland who lived sometime between 55 BC and 408 D. The dates are fuzzy on this one. That's a lot of dates to be fuzzy on. It's a really big window. She has a really interesting face, which was reconstructed by a graduate student in 2019. She didn't have any teeth when she died. She was in her 60s, and she looks really distinctive and wise and weathered, like an ancient female druid. The headlines all call her a Scottish druid woman, but there's nothing about her that we saw that specifically indicates she had any kind of religious role in her community. Her skull had been dug up and exhibited by a gentleman scholar in the 1830s, along with five other anonymous ancient skulls, under the label, quote, Druids of the Hebrides, in the Phrenological Society of Edinburgh. I mean, phrenology, don't get me started on the racist, terrible science of phrenology, which is not a science. Pseudoscience, really. Pseudoscience. Yes, it's absolutely a pseudoscience. Anyway, this label of Scottish Druid woman 
as far as we know, is totally arbitrary. Yeah, so the evidence in the archaeological record is pretty scarce. There are quite a few powerful women buried in large mound graves, especially in Hallstatt culture, but it's difficult to say what roles they actually played in their tribes because we don't actually know that much about Celtic religious practices going that far back. So we don't know what items a priestess definitely would have had in her grave. But there are a few intriguing burials like the Lady of Vieques that hint at a prominent religious role for some women in ancient Celtic cultures. Which brings us to possibly Jen's favorite section of this episode, Celtic folklore. But before we get into it, Jen, we have to step outside the timeline and bring you a few messages from our sponsors. And we're back! Hopefully you got some messages from the 21st century, and now we're going back into the world of Celtic mythology and female druids. We're now moving on to Celtic folklore and talking about female druids and Celtic folklore. So, Celtic folklore is rife with magical women, including witches, women of the Tuatidanan, Tuatidanan? I have no idea, babe. (laughs) (laughs) This is an episode where we have to pronounce things in Welsh and Irish. And we apologize to all of our Welsh and Irish listeners for the stuff we get wrong. Please forgive us. We're trying our best. We do not speak any of these languages fluently, and we have trouble pronouncing things in English. Who wrote this episode? A wizard did it. So anyway, women of the Tuat de Danan and the fairy folk, goddesses and queens or princesses who use magic. These are among the uh, magical women that you will encounter in Celtic mythology. And I'm not going to go into all the examples of magical women. What I really tried to do here was narrow things down to talk about human women specifically referred to as female druids. In Irish folklore specifically, female druids had a special name, the Bandrui. Admittedly, the lines between female druids and Celtic mythology and other kinds of magical women do blur a lot, and you could make an argument that they're all really the same thing. Some of this may depend on how things were translated and whether the translator used the word druid or something like a priestess or sorceress. And I tried to rely on translations rather than fictional retellings to get these stories as I thought that was a little bit more accurate. So that's why I picked some of these women to talk about here from Celtic mythology. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Fidelma. So Fidelma was a character in the Cattle Raid of Cooley, and we keep going back to the Cattle Raid of Cooley. This is a story we tell in the Hound of Ulster episode, and I've seen some retellings refer to her as a member of the Tuat de Danan, or the fairy folk, but in Thomas Kinsellan's The Tain, which is a direct translation from the medieval Irish, not a retelling, not like sort of a poetic retelling where they reword it, she's referred to as a female poet, which as everyone knows is a bard or a kind of druid. We told the story of the Cattle Raid of Cooley, and we talked about its history extensively in another episode, The Hound of Ulster, so I'm not going to go into the whole story here, but the basic gist of this anecdote goes like this. When Queen Maeve decides to go to war against Ulster because someone on the Ulster side refused to rent her his prized bull, and yes, this is actually why she declares war, she's met on the road by a mysterious young woman. The woman wears a red embroidered tunic and sandals with gold clasps. Her speckled coat is fastened with a gold pin. Oh, I love it already. I knew you were going to like the part where we talk about her bling, so I gave (laughs) you that paragraph. Her yellow hair is bound up in an elaborate updo, two tresses swept up on her head, and a third hanging loose all the way to her calves. She stands in the road, directly in the path of Maeve's chariot. Maeve stops in front of her and demands to know who she is. The young woman says she is Fidelma, a woman poet, just back from learning the arts of poetry and prophecy in Alba, or Britain. I mean, that is definitely a druidist giveaway there, because Britain was the center of druid learning. 
Yeah. So Maeve asked her what she prophesies for her war. Fidelma predicts oceans of blood, mostly wrought by Cucullin, and just masses and masses of severed heads and gore. And Maeve, queen that she is, decides not to heed the warning and presses on with her war anyway. Look, Maeve says, if you don't have good news, I don't need to hear it. Yeah, essentially, she just wanted her to like throw her a softball being like, I see you sitting on the throne covered in gold and oak branches and laurels and your praises being sung far and wide. And also the prize bull. She gets to rent the prize bull. Let's not forget what this war is about, Jen. She really needs to stud that bull out. (laughs) That's right. So anyway, the next druid woman we're going to talk about is called Clacta. So this is kind of a more obscure one. Clacta means earth spear, and she is the daughter of a druid named Mogroith. And it's said she traveled all over the world with her father in a craft called the Rokromach, or the Ord Wheel. Learned the magical arts from him and discovered standing stones in Italy, and that's probably a Christian invention as druids in contemporary records were never associated with standing stones. I don't know. Clacta is a tragic heroine tied to a specific place, the Hill of Ward, which is close to Tara, an ancient ceremonial site in Ireland that's chock full of archaeological sites from the Neolithic to the Iron Age and is said to be the crowning place of the High Kings of Ireland. And also, it was like one of the places where they had those big bonfires at Samhain, which we talked about two episodes ago. So Clacta comes up in two places in Irish lore. The lore of women, a sort of encyclopedia of women in ancient Irish myth, and the lore of places, a guide to the stories behind various place names. Both of these manuscripts date from around the 10th or 11th centuries AD. Clacta's name is associated with this place, the Hill of Ward, which may have been the site of Samhain festivals in pre-Christian times. Part of Samhain celebrations include the lighting of a huge bonfire and sometimes a fire wheel. And recent excavations on the hill have found evidence of large bonfires dating all the way back to 500 AD. Her story in both texts is a little muddled, and I haven't been able to find a translation I could read, so I'm reading secondhand source descriptions, and her story has been at least somewhat Christianized. Her father, Mogroith, was associated with the biblical Simon Magus, a magician in the Bible who had a confrontation with Peter before converting to Christianity. So there's definitely a Christian gloss on this. There's some stuff about Clacta killing a martyr. There's some stuff about Simon Magus raping her, which is freaking terrible. But it's said that she gave birth to triplets on the Hill of Ward, each one from a different father, and that she died in childbirth. Also, the triplets is kind of interesting because, like, when you look at different mythologies, when you have, like, children by different fathers, a lot of times that means, like, one of them is divine, one of them set out to be a hero. Yeah, and also, like, triplicate gods and goddesses, triplicate goddesses in particular were a big recurring theme in Celtic mythology. I know in different mythologies, too, like, I think in Greek and Roman mythology. Well, and Christianity, the people writing it down, three is the divinity, it's the holy trinity. So you can't take away from who the sources are and what they're talking about, you know. She's been raped by this... um, Simon Magus? Yeah, to me, that all just smacks of, like, her being Christianized to death, pretty much. Anyway, this is a kind of recurring theme in Irish mythology. A magical woman who dies in childbirth and gives her power to the land. See Maka, the goddess who gives birth to twins after winning a race and gives her name to Eamon Maka in the Ulster Cycle. Death in childbirth would have been pretty common for women in Celtic societies. We've seen some statistics that say that the life expectancy was around 35 years old for women in ancient Celtic cultures. That wasn't because a large number of women died around then. It's the deaths in childbirth that skewed these statistics so young. 
So this story, Clockta's story in particular, reminds me of this documentary I saw. I just have to talk about documentaries, Jen. About a grave excavated in the town of Baldock in 1989. This town has a really ancient history that goes as far back as the Roman invasion. I think it's in the UK. And the grave dates from around 70 AD. So from right around the time the Romans were invading and subduing Britain. So the person in the grave was a woman. She was around 40 years old, and she was not the only person in there. The tiny skeleton of a newborn baby had also been placed in the grave near her right shoulder. This suggests that the woman and baby died in childbirth. But in the process of excavating, archaeologists found the bones of a second baby amidst the woman's hip bones. The position of this one basically proved she died in childbirth because the skeleton was still in the birth canal, facing the wrong way, so feet first. This is known as a breech birth and was often the cause of deaths in childbirth before modern times. But that isn't all the archaeologists found. There was a third baby skeleton behind that one, still in the womb. It's likely no one, not the woman, not her midwife, if there was one, knew about this third baby. The baby stage of development suggested they were about a month premature and that the birth would have happened unexpectedly. Although with triplets and twins, they do tend to be a little bit premature. Yeah, I think that's not uncommon. This woman's grave was found beneath that of a man in his 50s or 60s, who had been buried a few years later. He'd been buried crosswise across the woman's grave, with his head resting above her outstretched hand. It's intriguing to think that this was her husband, buried near her when he died. Yeah, so according to the article, the author's name was Keith Fitzpatrick Matthews, this was the earliest case of triplets discovered anywhere in the world. There's one account of twins I know of in the ancient record where the mother survived and gave birth to twins, and that's Cleopatra. Yeah. She had twins with Mark Antony, remember? There were other people who had twins, but yeah, that's one that we know of. I mean, I'm sure there were definitely other people in history that had twins and survived, but that's the only woman I can think of in an ancient source who had twins and survived. Not saying there aren't others, that's just the only one I know of that was real and not mythological, because there are lots of twins in mythology, too. So as soon as I read the Clacta story, it reminded me of this archaeological discovery. This death took place during the twilight of the time of the Druids. Anglesey and the Druids' last stand had happened only about, I think, 10 years earlier. And this was probably a world where everyone knew a woman who died in childbirth, particularly someone close to them. And of course, twins and triplets, although rare, would have been particularly dangerous to give birth to. And I feel like the Clacta story pulls back the curtain on a very common experience in the ancient world having a loved one die in childbirth. Is it any wonder that Celtic people in ancient times would have been drawn to a myth that imparts a certain amount of power and holiness to women who died in childbirth? It makes emotional sense to me. Yeah. So our next story comes from the Fenian Cycle, the story of Finn McCool. He's got the coolest name in all of Irish folklore. Finn McCool is an awesome name. <laughs> so, so Finn McCool was an Irish mythological warrior in the same vein as Cuchulain, and his story dates from around the same time as Cuchulain. Actually, the earliest part of the story is found in the same book called The Book of the Dun Cow, which is a collection of stories from various parts of Irish mythology, some of which date as far back as the 7th century, but the collection was assembled in the 1100s AD. Anyway, when Finn McCool's father was killed, his mother sent him to be raised by his sister, a druidess named Budmal, and her totally not platonic in our head canon life partner, a warrior woman named Leoth Leocra. So Finn McCool had two mothers. I think that's so adorable. I love it. You know, there's so many things about the modern day that really upset me. And one of the things is this idea that, like, for some reason, queer people haven't existed throughout all of time. But every time you dig just a little bit deeper into the ancient source, there they are. They're represented and they existed. And it's so important. 
that we make it our business to shine the spotlight on that. Yeah, so both women taught the young Finn McCool all kinds of things. Liathliakra taught him the art of being a warrior. She taught him how to use a sword and be tough. And Bogmal taught him wisdom. The two women kept him with them until Finn McCool's boyhood deeds began to become famous throughout the land. And by then, they believed he would attract the attention of the man who had killed his father. So they sent him out into the wide world, saying that they had taught him all they could. So long, kiddo. Good luck. Bye. <laughs> so the next druidess that appears in Celtic mythology that I want to talk about is Relbeo. So Relbeo was a druidess who appears briefly in the Book of Invasions, which was a manuscript assembled by an anonymous person sometime in the 1100s that purports to be a history of Ireland from the beginning of time all the way back from the beginning of time to the Middle Ages. And up until the 1800s, this was believed to be factual, but now it's widely regarded as mythology. Ralbert was described as the daughter of the King of Greece and the mother of the memorably named Alba One-Tooth and Fergus Redside. She traveled with her son's army, and while they were besieging a castle, she transformed herself into the spitting image of the concubine of the king of that castle, named Connor, and snuck in and insinuated herself into Connor's bed. From there, she sent important intelligence to her son's army, such as where the weak points were in the walls. So the sun sent their warriors and hurtful animals against the weak points, driving away Connor and his war host. What's a hurtful animal? It's not that clear, but I just thought it was an interesting turn of phrase. I mean, it's clearly a war elephant. It must be a war elephant. They're very hurtful when they want to be. So the Book of Invasions tells us that while the battle between warriors was going on, there was also a battle between druidesses. It gives frustratingly little detail about that. Here's an interesting thing to point out. The mention of Greece in Relbeo's story. The poems and stories in the Book of Invasions date from mostly the thousands AD. So they aren't ancient or contemporary to Druids. But it still points to a link between Greek philosophers and Druidic thinkers. One that's very ancient. You can find it in Diodorus, writing in Julius Caesar's time. He calls the Druids' belief in reincarnation, quote, the Pythagorean Doctrine. You can also see it in Ammianus Marcellinus, writing in the 300s AD. There may be a link between the belief in reincarnation or survival of the soul after death, something that Caesar and others claimed made the Celts fearless in battle, and the philosophies of the Greek Pythagoras. There may have been an ancient intellectual connection between the two worlds. Let's talk about Welsh magical women, because we've talked a lot about Irish magical women. And Jen insisted that I include this. At first, I really didn't want to. I just wanted to talk about women who were specifically ID'd as druids in the ancient mythology. And a lot of that, for whatever reason, is in Irish mythology. But Jen was like, no, you have to include the Welsh mythology. You do, because it's so fascinating. And how can we talk about Anglesey and where the Druids had their last stand, which was in Northern Wales, and not include Welsh mythology? So I wound up doing a little bit of a deep dive into Welsh magical women who were not referred to as Druids, and I think there's a really strong case for including them anyway, and I'm going to talk about that. So so I'm not really sure why it is that most of the uh, magical women specifically named as Druids occur in Irish mythology. But my theory is that if England was a time capsule to a more ancient version of Celtic culture in Caesar's time, one that was untouched by Mediterranean influence, Ireland's Celtic culture was a time capsule to the time capsule. Ireland was never invaded by the Romans. Its connections to the most ancient aspects of Celtic culture may have continued for longer than they did in other parts of the UK, and may have been transmitted in purer form to the medieval monks who started writing things down in the thousands AD or thereabouts. That's one theory, and of course there are other ancient elements of pre-Roman Celtic lore that crop up in more recent Welsh folklore. 
magical cauldrons, magical severed heads, magical weapons, and things like that spring immediately to mind. And you can look at some magical women in Welsh mythology and see some interesting connections to older traditions that harken back to the Druids, even if the myths don't call them that specifically. One place to look is Arthurian legend. Yeah, so the history of the Arthurian cycle is a rabbit hole that I found really confusing. The Arthurian cycle has French roots, it has English roots, and it has Welsh roots. The British monk Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote one of the most famous versions of the story in, I believe, the 1100s AD. And of course, Chrétien de Troyes, in the same century, wrote a lot of Arthurian poetry and possibly invented Lancelot. He was the one that kind of gave it its romantic sheen. But what I'm going to talk about now is Welsh mythology, which is possibly older. One place to look for magical women in the uh, Welsh Arthurian cycle is the Mabinogion. I'm sure I'm screwing up the pronunciation on that, but that's the best I can do. So the Mabinogion, which I'm probably butchering, is an ancient prose cycle of mythology from Wales, and it may date from around the 1100s or the 1300s. We're not really sure. The dates are fuzzy. But it was definitely written down by monks from older oral stories. The Mabinogion includes tales of King Arthur and his court that vary significantly from the more well-known stories. There's also the Spoils of Anavin, a poem in which King Arthur travels to the underworld. It's notoriously difficult to date. Some scholars suggest that it may be as old as the 600s AD, or perhaps date to the 900s. That would make it among the oldest Celtic myths we've encountered. The Spoils of Anavin is kind of fragmentary, but in that poem is an account of nine virgin priestesses who live on an island like the Galazene. Nine virgin priestesses on an island? What does this remind you of? I mean, what could they be getting up to on that island? Uh, controlling the weather and the winds, obviously, and prophesying. Controlling the fates of men. Yeah. So in this story, the priestesses guard a magical cauldron and can breathe fire. King Arthur steals the cauldron because he's a dick. Because he's a total dick. Yeah, it doesn't belong to him, but he's just going to take it anyway. Nine virgin priestesses or sorceresses crop up in other places associated with the most ancient versions of Arthurian legend that appear in Welsh mythology. In the Mabinogion, they show up in the story of Perder, son of Efrog, which is part of the Three Romances chapter of the cycle. In that story, a young man named Peridor, a knight of King Arthur's court, goes out to face foes and have adventures. In the course of the story, it's discovered that his greatest enemies are the Nine Witches of Carlow, which means the Castle of Glow, or the Shining Fortress in English. The Nine Witches are black-clad, dreaded warriors and sorceresses who terrorize the land around them. Peridor stays with the witches and trains with them, acquiring their powers, and then... Eventually, he and Arthur's warband kill them all because, once again, this is a story of someone in Arthur's court being a dick. So there's also some backstory about how the witches killed his cousin. And there's this really creepy and haunting scene where he's shown a severed head in like a sack or a box or something. And he's not supposed to ask about it or talk about it because of some, I think, a gaysa put on him or some prohibition where he's not allowed to ask about things. And then he finds out later that that's his cousin's severed head and that the witches killed him. I guess that would give him a reason to want to kill these women. Sure, but he wasn't supposed to know that or ask that. Listen, if you don't like the answer, don't ask the question. We did this earlier with Maeve. Come on. Right. So the nine witches also appear in Pogger, 
a fragmentary Welsh poem from the 1100s in which the knight Sir Kay of King Arthur's court also kills the nine witches on a mountain peak. He also kills some lions on the island of Anglesey because, shocker, he's a dick from Arthur's court. Are you sensing a theme? I am. And to be fair, we're being super hard on the stories of King Arthur's court. I love the Arthurian legends. But when you drill down a little bit into them, there is a lot of dickery going on. That doesn't mean I don't love them. Listen, I love a lot of things in which people are dicks. But there are in these particular myths, when we look for these nine witches, these sort of galazine of Welsh myth, we're coming up on a lot of people in King Arthur's court killing them. Yeah. And the problem I have with that is the Christian lens that you're seeing and you see it throughout the Arthurian legends, which is everything pagan sort of has to be decimated by King Arthur's court when it's being written down by the Christians because King Arthur's a Christian king who is uniting the ancient world through Christianity. So that's why I get a bit difficult on it. So the nine witches also appear in Geoffrey Monmouth's Life of Merlin from 1150 as nine magical sisters who tend to King Arthur's wounds on the Isle of Avalon. Again, they're associated with a magical island. So there's a really fascinating theory that these stories of Knights of King Arthur slaying various magical women, especially these nine sisters, are the last remaining echo of an ancient genocide, where a conquering force, one source suggests Christians from the 5th and 6th centuries AD, wiped out an older, potentially more female-dominated culture seen as magical and mysterious. So I got this theory from, and I apologize to this author if I mispronounce her name, but Dira B. Mahoney's The Grail, A Casebook. But I think if you're going to go back to the 5th or 6th centuries, you could just as easily trace this back to the time of the Roman conquest, maybe 500 years earlier, when Roman forces wiped out the last resistance of the Druids. And these descriptions of the wild virgin hags that keep coming up in Celtic mythology of these nine priestesses remind me a little bit of the wild-haired Druid women that we saw making the last stand at Anglesey, and they also remind me of the uh, nine priestesses of the Galazene. So, remember, these stories are much younger than the Roman conquest, usually about a thousand years younger, and they were written down by Christian monks, so we're seeing them through a Christian lens. We have no idea how much the monks changed the story to suit their own worldview, but... I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on here. It's fascinating and heartbreaking to think that these stories are the last traces, almost unrecognizable, of an ancient trauma. The story about the Roman conquest, where the last remnants of this ancient magical culture were represented as female druids. This suggests a role for female druids in this ancient, unremembered time that was even more significant than the way it's depicted in Mediterranean writings. So how convincing is this evidence from the mythology that there were real druidesses in the time of the druids? I mean, there are definitely druidesses in Celtic mythology specifically. But these stories, like we said, were written down mostly in the 1000s. Some have parts that are as old as maybe the 7th or 8th centuries AD. But nothing goes back all the way to the time of druids if they would have really existed back in the Iron Age up until the time of the Roman conquest of Gaul and then Britain. On the other hand, it's likely these stories were all based on oral storytelling traditions that are considerably older than the written versions. But it's impossible to say how old. It's hard to say how much the written version would resemble an oral tale from centuries before, if it does at all. Chasing down real female druids, the Bandrui, the Galazine, and others, is kind of like chasing down female gladiators. The evidence is scant, and much of it can be interpreted many different ways. But sometimes you discover something very telling. The rare but concrete mentions of female druids in Greek and Roman writing. 
the grave of a high-status woman who seemed to hold a special place in her community. Stories of magical women that carry a grain of truth, even through centuries of distortion. I think with the accumulation of evidence, we're going to go out on a limb even further than we've gone out already and say that female druids were real. They existed. They were leaders in their communities and they stood with their brothers, the druids, to fight for their people and way of life. Long may they be honored and remembered. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks. And in the meantime, catch up with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. And check out our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, although we definitely appreciate it if you give more, you can get all of our episodes ad-free and you can also get exclusive extra episodes for Patreon subscribers. All of our ad-free episodes are not up yet, but we're in the process of uploading everything and hopefully they will all be up there soon and then you can listen to everything ad-free. So thank you so much for joining us and we will see you in two weeks. Thank you. 